0: This morning I want to I want to begin by actually reading the passage and then we'll launch into what John has written for us by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So John 19, and we're going to look at verses 31 through the end of the chapter verse 42. So if you have your Bibles, follow with me as I read John chapter 19 starting at verse 31. He who saw it has borne witness, his testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. And after these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus but secretly for fear of the Jews, Asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now, on the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. I read a story this week about a Christian who got a job in a lumber camp, whose workers had a reputation of being very ungodly. And a friend, hearing that this man had been hired, said to him, if those lumberjacks ever find out you're a Christian, You're going to be in for a hard time. And after a year, the man decided to return home for a visit. And while in town, he met the friend who had predicted that he would receive ridicule and persecution from the workers in the lumber camp. And well, said the friend, did they give you a hard time because you're a Christian? And he confidently said, no, not at all. They didn't give me a, a bit of trouble. They never even found out. Undercover Christians, only God knows for sure. As we come to John 19, we hear about Joseph and Nicodemus. They would be classified as undercover Christians. No one but God knew if they were believers. In our passage, John writes that Joseph, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for the fear of the Jews... Is there, and from the other Gospels, we learned that he is a prominent member of the Sanhedrin. In Luke's Gospel, he adds that Joseph was a good and righteous man who had not agreed to the plan or the action to kill Jesus. The second undercover Christian is Nicodemus. He's mentioned twice before in the Gospel of John. The first time we hear of him is in John chapter 3. Nicodemus visits Jesus by night, acknowledging that he was a teacher who had come from God as evidenced by his many miracles. And Jesus startled Nicodemus a Pharisee and a teacher of Israel by saying in John 3:3, 3, 3, "Truly, truly, I say to you unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God." All of Nicodemus's religious activities and careful obedience to the law of Moses would not qualify him to be in God's kingdom. Rather, he must be born of the Spirit. We don't know how Nicodemus responded to this, but we read in John chapter 7, after the Pharisees were frustrated because of their officers not arresting Jesus, they scornfully ask in John seven forty eight, no one of the rulers of Pharisees has believed in him, has he, has, has, has you? And Nicodemus speaks up, weakly defends Jesus by, by stating our law does not judge a man unless it first hears him and knows what he is doing, does it? And his colleagues quickly put him down By replying, you are not also from Galilee, are you? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Both Joseph and Nicodemus may have been among those that John references in John chapter 12, where he negatively refers to the leaders in John 12, 42 and 43. He says, nevertheless, many even of the rulers believed in him and Jesus, but because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue, For they love the approval of men rather than the approval of God. But now, we come to John 19, and after Jesus has been crucified, Nicodemus joins Joseph in giving Jesus a proper burial. Joseph goes to Pilate and asks for the body. A very bold thing to do. While Nicodemus comes along also provides the the 75 pounds of of myrrh and aloes to fold into the linen, wrapping the the body of Jesus to to do away with the stench that would be there as the body decomposed. And these two men take Jesus' body from the cross and prepare him for burial and lay him in Joseph's personal brand new tomb, a cave near Golgotha, hewn out of the rock where no other bodies had been laid before. So in this passage, you have this odd situation where the disciples, the 11 that were remaining who had followed Jesus when he was alive, who had expressed, as Peter did, their willingness to die. And where are they? They're they're not mentioned. They, They flee when Jesus dies. And it seems that John is the only one that comes back to see the scene at the cross. But you have Joseph and Nicodemus, who had hesitated to confess Christ publicly when he was alive, now risk, an extreme risk, their positions in the Sanhedrin. And they take this bold, open stand for Christ after he has died. Although a few commentators question whether these two men came to a saving faith John never directly states it. It seems to me that the fruit of their bold actions testifies to the underlying faith that was there. And so I had to ask, and you should ask, why the change? Why did these men now come out boldly for Christ when they were easily, they easily could have reasoned uh, he, he must not have been the Messiah? He, he must not have been the Savior. He, he's crucified. Why why risk the wrath of Pilate and the rejection from their fellow members of the council now to join something of a lost cause? Why didn't they just shrug their shoulders and say, oh, oh well, I, I hope that his disciples give him a decent burial? And I believe the answer is, as John writes this final scene from the cross, as these two, the actions of these two men, these, these men had watched Jesus die and it deeply affected them. Seeing Christ crucified solidified their commitment to him. And thanks to them, Jesus' body was not thrown on, on an ash heap where, where they burned bodies of, of crucified men. No, even if that happened, God could still raise them from the dead. But we wouldn't have the evidence of an empty tomb then, secured by a Roman guard. And so God uses these two men, even though they seemingly from the human side come late to the story, but he uses their costly commitment. Before we look at all that's transpired, let's look back here even at Christ crucified. And the first thing I want you to... to, to remember and to notice is Jesus died. And you may be thinking, yeah, I know that. We read that. And by the time, though, that John writes his account of Jesus' death on the cross, it's important to establish that Jesus' actual death happened. It's there to defy those rumors that denied the gospel. There were those who denied that Jesus was truly human, and therefore he actually suffered and died in the human nature and body. This is a... Heresy common to the Gnostic heretics who considered spirit to be pure and all matter to be unworthy. Muhammad, leader of the Muslim religion who, who, whose knowledge of Christianity came through Gnostic sources, wrote in the Quran, quote, they did not kill him, neither did they crucify him. It only seemed to be so. And the devastating impact of that false teaching on over a billion Muslims today believing in Islam Gnosticism properly dates uh, to the mid-2nd century AD, yet the ideas of it were current during John's ministry. There were others that denied the reality of Jesus' resurrection by, by means of the swoon theory. I need to talk about this, but it just makes me laugh when I read it. It's so ridiculous to me, but yet many believe it, the swoon theory a book uh, entitled The Passover Plot to revive the theory that Jesus really didn't die on the cross, that he just swooned and, and was placed in a tomb where the, the cool air revived him. And in their teaching, Jesus was supposedly uh, put away secretly from from by the disciples. It took him down from the cross and recovered and helped his wounds so that the early Christians would have this, this hope and in, in this man. But John combats this false and erroneous claim by citing the most the most reliable morticians possible in the day. We have the most reliable morticians, the Roman soldiers, who walked by Jesus, observed carefully that he was already dead, and then jammed a spear into his side. These soldiers, so certain that Jesus was dead, they, they thought it was safe For them to ignore the orders to break his legs. There was simply no point to break the legs of a man who in their judgment, their certain judgment, was undoubtedly dead. But if Jesus didn't die, then he didn't atone for our sins. If he didn't die, then he was not raised from the dead, which means that our faith is worthless. And we're still in our sins, as 1 Corinthians 15 says. If Jesus didn't die, you have to throw out the entire gospel record, which is the, the only eyewitness testimony that we have about Jesus. But, friends, there's, there's too much evidence here. And John establishes the fact of Jesus' death in three ways. First, in John 19 31, he reports that the Jews, because it was a day of preparation so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, asked Pilate that their legs might be broken. It was a high Sabbath because it immediately followed the Passover. In Deuteronomy 21, 22 and 23 states that if a man was condemned to death and hung upon a tree, his corpse should not hang on the tree overnight so as to not defile the land. So the Jews wanted these crucified men's bodies removed from the cross so they would not defile the land and at the same time that they had crucified an innocent man who was in fact the Messiah. And so Pilate gave the order to break the crucified men's legs, which would easily result in a quick death. After these men had had suffered for for hours on the cross, the soldiers would come and shatter their shins with a heavy mallet. You ever walked around the house and stubbed your toe? Or even hit your shin and and how painful that is? We can't imagine then what they experienced. Breaking their legs, disabling them from using their legs now to to push themselves up, to breathe. And the shock and pain of broken legs, along with the lack of air, would quickly result in death. So the soldiers smashed the legs of the two thieves, who were on the either side of Jesus. When they came to Jesus, they saw that he was already dead. So they didn't break his legs They would not have ignored Pilate's orders unless they were absolutely certain that Jesus was in fact dead. The second way that John shows us that Jesus was dead is that he reports how one of the soldiers, presumably uh, there to make sure that Jesus was dead, pierced his side with a spear, resulting in in blood and water to gush out. There's all sorts of uh, discussion on this. Medical experts disagree on exactly what happened, but it's obvious from the flow of blood and water that Jesus was dead. Possibly dead before the the spear in their minds was even thrust in. But even if he hadn't already died, this spear thrust would have finished the job. And it wasn't a minor puncture wound. No, we'll read, Lord willing, in the next chapter that it was a, a scar large enough to put your hand into. John underscores his eyewitness testimony of the truth of the piercing of Jesus' side, and he says, and he who has seen has testified. This is John speaking of himself, and his testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth so that you also may believe. The third way that John proves that Jesus was dead is that Joseph and Nicodemus prepare him for burial by wrapping his body in the, the spices and the linen if there had been the slightest evidence of breath or a pulse, they would not have continued the process. So we can be certain that Jesus died and was buried, which is essential to the gospel. It's essential to the gospel that this happens. So Jesus dies. Secondly, through Jesus' death, we have salvation. Jesus's death was unique among all human deaths that have ever occurred. Jesus was unique. As fully God, his death satisfied God's righteous requirement, and as fully man, his death atoned for human sin. He paid in full the debt of sin for his people, and he proclaimed, as we looked at last week, just before he dies, it is finished. But also, John wants us to think about the significance of the flow of blood and water from Jesus' side as it relates to our salvation. Through eyewitnesses and testimony of the truth of the event, he wants us to believe, he says. Beyond the fact that the the flow of blood and water certified Jesus' death, John, who loves symbolism, most likely wants us to think about the symbolic meaning of this. But the problem is, commentators, again, differ on what this means. THE MOST COMMON SUGGESTION HAS BEEN THAT THE WATER REPRESENTS BAPTISM AND THE BLOOD REPRESENTS THE LORD'S TABLE. BUT MOST COMMENTATORS VIEW THAT AS SOMETHING FOREIGN. READING INTO THE TEXT IS MORE LIKELY THAT THE BLOOD AND WATER POINT TO THE ETERNAL LIFE AND THE CLEANSING FLOW FROM JESUS' DEATH. J.C. RYLE BELIEVED THAT JOHN HAD IN MIND ZECHARIAH 13.1 THAT SAYS, in that day a fountain will be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for impurity. And that verse occurs just five verses after Zechariah 12:10, which John quotes with referencing Jesus' piercing of his side. So the blood refers to the fact that Jesus' blood cleanses us from all sin. And the water also pictures cleansing as well as the eternal life in the Holy Spirit. The historic church believes this. In fact, for years we have sung this. The hymn by William Cooper wrote, There was a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. Fanny Crosby wrote, Jesus, keep me near the cross. There is a precious fountain free to all, a healing stream flows from Calvary's mountain. When we read that and when we hear that, it's, it's very important that we just don't walk away and say, that's nice, that's interesting. No, we should be moved by this. We should be impacted. Jesus' death on the cross should be real and personal for you. John testifies that he saw the blood and water flow from Jesus' side and he reports it to us and he writes in a way so that you also may believe remember this is why the gospel of john is written for us we will look at next week these are written so that you may believe that jesus is the christ the son of god and that by believing you may have life in his name through the blood of jesus there's full redemption for the sins of those who put their faith in jesus as savior and lord there's another thing I want you to notice, though, before we move on, that Jesus' death and burial is unique, but it also fulfills prophecy, a lot of prophecy. Although Jesus' crucifixion on the cross must have been a horrifying experience and a sight for those that looked on it, Jesus or John wants us to know that God sovereignly ordained it that he even uses the wicked to fulfill his purposes. John has already shown this in a narration of Jesus' crucifixion, but he continues to drive home the point. He says, for these things came to pass to fulfill the scripture, not a bone of him shall be broken. And John is probably combining three Old Testament scriptures, Exodus 1246 and Numbers 912, which prohibit breaking the bones of the Passover lamb. And then Psalm 3420, which refers to God protecting the righteous man from his enemies, breaking his bones. To me, when I read this, and it should hopefully the same for you, it's significant that these soldiers who, under the orders of their, their officer, who are commanded now to break the legs of these men crucified, would skip Jesus, would go to the other two and break their legs. Even when they they see that he's dead, it would have been normal for them to break his legs too, just to to follow through what's been commanded of them so they don't get into trouble. But God sovereignly prevented the soldiers from obeying the orders so that Jesus would fulfill the prophecy that was written. Also, a soldier thrust his spear into Jesus' side probably to make sure that he was dead he wasn't ordered to do this. It was something that he did on a, on a whim. Just happened to do this. But John 19.37 points out that this was to fulfill Zechariah 12.10, that they shall look on him whom they pierced. It also fulfills Isaiah 53.5, which says that the suffering servant was pierced through for our transgressions. And the third prophecy that Jesus' burial fulfilled was Isaiah 53, 9. His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was a rich man in his death. Normally, a a crucified man's body would be left on the cross until the vultures had eaten it and taken it down and then thrown into an ash heap and, and burned. But because God always accomplished his purposes, Jesus was buried in a rich man's tomb J.C. Ryle observes that Jesus was rich twice in his life. Once at his birth, when the wise man brought gold, frankincense, and myrrh, and again at his death when he's buried in a rich man's tomb. So looking at the crucified Christ should, should lead us to further commitment to him because he died for our sins to provide for us salvation. And he's a fulfillment of God's Prophetic promises. God planned every detail of his death and resurrection for our salvation. And God has accomplished what is humanly impossible. He has finished what is impossible for humans to do on their own by by sending his own son to give up his life for us on the cross. Jesus was unique. And when this, this one, the this special one suffered, his suffering was unique. You need to know that, that many died, the horrific death by crucifixion, but no one died like Jesus died. His suffering for us on Calvary was unique. Why was it unique? Well, look at who suffered. Jesus Christ, fully man, yet truly God. His death on the cross was unique because why he suffered. He didn't die for himself, but he died for someone else. He was sinless, but he died for the sins of others. His death on the cross was unique because of the purpose. He died to ransom us from captivity of sin. He is the only one who stands in this unique place and in this unique way. And Jesus Christ is the only one who ever has. He is the only one who ever can. And he is the only one who ever will stand in this unique place. There is no one else. There is only one mediator between God and man. The man, Christ Jesus. And we need this unique one. We need Jesus. Jesus. As we come back to these two men, they were at a point in their lives fearful of telling anyone that they were believers. The fear of what would happen to their, to their jobs, to their livelihood, to their families if they were to speak out. And, and they saw the cost of what they might lose and they held back. But then we read in this passage, they held back no longer. Their faith in Christ compelled them to be bold. And in that we see results, three results of their actions. The first thing we see is that you will be rejected. You'll be rejected for your faith. By, by burying Jesus, Joseph and Nicodemus would have incurred the wrath and rejection of the, of the Sanhedrin, who would have viewed them as traitors now. Their reputation, their influence, their influence, All of what they had built up in their life was now ruined. Commitment to Christ will cost you. And you may be rejected. You know, people don't mind in this world if you say that you admire Jesus, that he's he's a good moral teacher. They're not bothered by that. They're, They're okay if you say that Jesus is a way to God. But when you say that Jesus was crucified for sinners and that he's the only way to God, you will feel the rejection. You will hear the response, are you telling me that I'm a sinner and that I need saving? That's offensive. And they will reject you. Just as I'm studying this passage, I hear on the news just this week, I don't know if you've followed what's happening on Capitol Hill. Maybe your, your news feed, your, your, your television has been filled with the FBI director, but I'm not talking about him. There was something else that happened on the Hill. There was a testimony before the Senate Budget Committee. Did anyone hear about this? Oh, good. President Trump nominated an assistant budget director, Russell Voigt. The interview brought media attention because of the hostile tone of questioning that happened as the Vermont independent Senator Bernie Sanders, who we know ran for president, questioned Russell Voigt. If you were to watch the video exchange between the two of them, you'd notice a very hostile tone of Senator Sanders. And then it ends with this statement: quote, Russell Voigt is not someone who is what this country is supposed to be about. And if you only heard that, you would think, what transpired to bring about that end statement? Well, here is what Al Mohler writes on his blog. It turns out that last year at the blog site Resurgent, Voigt had written the post in which he defended his alma mater, Wheaton College. You might recall that the controversy then was about Wheaton severing its relationship with a professor who had made statements concerning Islam that were considered to be outside of the institution's confession of faith. In writing a defense of Wheaton College's historic confession of faith, Vaught had defended the college's judgment, and furthermore, we simply have to note that in so doing, this particular nominee, as deputy—excuse deputy, me—as deputy budget director in terms of the White House, was actually articulating was nothing other than historic, orthodox, biblical Christianity. In trying to put the controversy at Wheaton into context, Voight had written, "Quote." Muslims do not simply have a deficient theology, they do not know God because they've rejected Jesus Christ his son and they stand condemned. Senator Sanders, I'm sure, from some of his lowly workers, find the article and now launching the attack of Russell Vaught on Wednesday. Sanders, responding to Vaught's article and argument, said, quote, this is indefensible, it's hateful, it's Islamophobic. And it's, it's it's an insult to over a billion Muslims throughout the world. I was shocked to read this, to the, the news and the way Sanders approached this. This is a testimony for a position as Assistant Budget Director. He came to prepare answers relating to his work, his history, the future position, and Senator Sanders is launching the questions that have nothing to do with the position, but his faith. And then I thought, should I be shocked? And why do I include this in a sermon about Jesus being buried? It's because Russell Void is a Christian, a vibrant member of Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C. He's an outspoken Christian. He wrote an article on a website defending all things, the gospel. John writes for us in John 14, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Folks, we don't have to apologize for that verse. We don't condemn people. That's not our job. Our job is to proclaim the truth. And Russell Voigt may not be affirmed for his position. And the reason that's been brought to the service is because people reject Jesus Christ. Al Mohler writes, it's not just Russell Voigt. Pretty soon it will be any Christian who's involved in public life in any way who eventually is asked the angry question, do you really believe that Jesus Christ is the only Savior and salvation is found only in his name? Just understand what took place this week. An, el- an elected member of the United States Senate said, it, said that historic biblical Christianity is incompatible with the American way of life. To quote him exactly, he said that it's not what this country is supposed to be about. And what we saw this week is, is the new secular prescription that was handed down, and we should know with bitter anger, end quote. Friends, we will be rejected by this country, we will be rejected by this world, and, and we're not sliding into secularism, we are secular. This world is secular. And, and you may think it's, this is coming out of the blue, this is surprising that this would happen we just covered this a few chapters back in John John 15 if the world hates you know that it has hated me before it hated you if you were of the world the world would love you as its own but because you are not of the world but I chose you out of the world therefore the world hates you remember the world that I said to you a servant is not greater than his master if they persecuted me they will also persecute you This is what happens to those that confess Jesus Christ. We continue to live in a hostile world. And if we're not undercover Christians, we will face this persecution. And they will call our message hateful. Commitment to Christ will bring rejection of people. You'll also lose your religion if you commit yourself to Christ. The Jewish leaders wouldn't set foot in Pilate's dwelling so as not to incur defilement on the Passover. And they wouldn't dare touch a dead body, especially during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. But Joseph enters into Pilate's presence to ask for Jesus' body. And then he and Nicodemus defile themselves by preparing that body for burial. And in so doing, they they lose their religion but they gain Christ by religion i'm referring to those who are worried about an outward appearance religious people are meticulous about cleansing the outside of the cup while inwardly they're full of sinful self-indulgence religious people do things to look good before people but they don't come to Christ as needy sinners to receive mercy and to live in holiness and on that thought level. To be committed to Jesus Christ, you've got to give up your religion and you have to replace it with the reality of God. You might also, as we see in this passage, lose your security and finances. Both Joseph and Nicodemus were were fairly rich. To bury Jesus, Joseph had to give up his personal tomb. Remember now, in this this moment, he doesn't believe there's a resurrection. He doesn't believe he's going to get it back. So he gives it away. Nicodemus supplied a lot of the costly spices for Jesus' burial. Jesus makes the radical claim in the Gospels. so then none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all he has, all of his possessions. God doesn't just own a tenth of what we have. Folks, he owns it all. We're just stewards of his and so commitment to Christ is costly. But do we gain anything? What's the upside of following Jesus? You know, Joseph and Nicodemus were rejected by the Jewish leaders, most certainly. They lost their, their rule-keeping religion. But even though they were rejected by these leaders, they were accepted by Christ. Even though they lost even riches, they they gained an eternal relationship with the risen Savior. Remember Jesus' words in Matthew 16, for whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Following Christ, most definitely causes rejection. and We will lose our religion and possibly re- lose our, our riches. We gain so much. So what's the purpose of it all? What's the purpose of all of this? Well, it's found this morning in verse 35. As I read earlier, he who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true. And he knows that he's telling the truth. That you also may believe. John is writing to convince you the truth of the gospel. You know, all of scripture, in the Old Testament to the New, all of scripture either leads to or flows from the cross. If you read the, uh, the Gospel of John, what we have here in John 19 is the climax. It's the pinnacle, of coming to Christ dying on the cross. This is the most important event in all of human history. Your life finds its beginning at the cross, and your life finds its fulfillment and meaning because of the cross. you know if today he finds you in the same boat as joseph or nicodemus realize that there's still hours left today to stand boldly as a disciples of, a disciple of jesus christ i can't help but think of all that that joseph and nicodemus might have missed out on because they didn't respond in confident belief in christ but in fear So I want to encourage you to don't waste any time cowering in fear of what others may think of you. The only one in the universe whose opinion really counts looks at you and finds you more valuable than any treasure here on earth. And Joseph and Nicodemus learn that Jesus was all that they needed. You don't realize Jesus is all you need until you excuse me, until Jesus is all you have. Let me say it again. You don't realize Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. The boldness of of Joseph and Nicodemus here proves that to be true. So friends, I wanna encourage you to find your rest in the gospel and not in your striving. The gospel instructs us to stop striving, to believe, to remember Jesus' words on the cross it's finished. The testimonies are true. Christ really died for you and for me and we can lay aside our worries and trust in him. I wanna read again the words of the song that I read earlier by William Cooper. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day, and there may I, though vile as he, wash all my sins away. Dear dying lamb, thy precious blood shall never lose its power till all the ransomed ones of God be saved to sin no more. When this poor, lisping, stammering tongue lies silent in the grave, Then in a nobler, sweeter song, I'll sing thy power to save. Let's pray. Father, we come before your throne this morning, and we praise you for your grace and patience in our lives. Father, I thank you for enduring with us. This morning, I realize that there are those here in our midst that do not have a relationship with you, and I pray for them this morning. I pray that they would turn away from their sin and trust in you alone for salvation. As Jesus says in the beginning of Mark's gospel, the time was fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. May they recognize that their way of life now is not the way of salvation, but they would see and recognize you and trust in you alone. Trust in you who can redeem them. And Father, for those of us this morning who are trusting in you for salvation, remind us again this morning. Remind us that we were once useless, like a stone in the wasteland, but now lifted high in your mercy out of the sorrows that we once experienced, now made new. Bring to our memories your glorious gospel that rescued us from the pit. And our mind can't fully understand even all that you've done for us, all the treasures of knowing you. But Father, we, we stand before your throne and we, we shout adoration. Holy, holy, holy are you, O Lord. Worthy of our praise. Worthy of our life. You are our strength and you are our song and you are our salvation. And you hold us together. You give us all that we need. May we glorify you with our life. And now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.